the last week or so, I was reading several articles in the uh, Victoria newspaper, the Times Colonist, and they were all based around the whole idea of uh, New Year's resolutions. This is the time that people make resolutions and promise to do better and all those kinds of good things and, uh, and so on. So let me ask you as we begin this morning, what are the three most common resolutions that people make? What do you think number one is? To lose weight. You got it right. Okay? Can we get that up? Number one is to lose weight. We got it? There we go. Number one is to lose weight. What's the second one? Exercise. I think that's part of the lose weight thing, Wayne. I, I dumped that all in there, okay? That, uh, lose weight, exercise, that all goes. So what was the second one? Most common one that was out? To stop smoking. Okay, that was it. You're right. Um, okay, what was the third one? Sorry? <laughs> Spend less money. Philip, you're right. Okay? And the third one was to get our credit card life and all that stuff in order and stay out of credit card debt and get our finances. Those are the three most common re resolutions that people make for this time of the year. And they last somewhere about 10 days. And then it just sort of, that's why we have to keep making the same ones year after year. As Christians, I'm going to suggest you we got to do a lot better than that. And we've got to think far, far beyond resolutions. And this morning and a Single message as we begin the new year, talk about what might be a prayer for the new year. In the middle of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it's a letter about the church, uh, there is a sudden burst of praise, a doxology. And Paul just, as it were, kind of, he just kind of pauses, and out of his heart and out of his life just flows this doxology. And this morning, if you have a Bible or an iPad, whatever you use, or use one of our two Bibles or so on, please. Turn to this passage and keep it open there for the message this morning because we're going to kind of look at the moments by verse. Ephesians chapter 3, 2021. Here's the doxology. You hear it several times this morning. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Paul says, now, now to him, and catch the words, who is, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. You ever seen that before? All we can ask or imagine. According to his power that is working in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. To this God who can do more than we can ask or imagine. Can I ask you to think about that this morning? To him be glory in the church. Paul is, is giving us a, a daring prayer in this doxology. No matter what you ask in prayer, he says, Can you imagine that God can do more than that? Can you imagine that God could take us further in that? Even in the realm of the imagination, God can do more than we can imagine. And he says that the place where these daring prayers, prayers have to come and be fulfilled, he says, is in the church. The Christian church is to be the place that gives glory to God. God's primary place to see his work done in and through is the church. When the church operates the way that God intended to, the church is the place that gives glory to God. God calls us into the church to be the church. His desire for us is to experience the community of the cross. You know, biblical Christianity is not individualistic. It's not Jesus and me. It is communal. And it's so much more than just the 
is nothing. We're to experience Christianity together. We're to share it together. We're to experience it and as we come to the cross alone, but we're not alone. We realize that we meet each other in the fellowship of the church. Now what prompts Paul to explode into this burst of praise, this doxology? Look back a few verses. Starts at verse 14. For this reason he says, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. <coughs> and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the measure of the fullness of God. In the year and a half I've been here, I came here actually a year and a half ago for about three months. Do you understand that? I came for three months a year and a half ago. I'm still here. (laughs) Can I say to you as a congregation, you have listened well. You've listened well. And this morning, I'm going to ask you to listen with your hearts. Because I'd like this morning to speak to you from my heart to you. And I'd like you to listen with your hearts. Not just your ears. Not just your mind. But with your heart. You got that? What's a prayer for the new year? Well, out of this passage, my prayer for 2013 is that VCBC, our church, would train people to be spiritually strong and to develop people with spiritual stamina. I get that out of verses 16 and 17. Look at them. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We need to understand and Philip mentioned this in his prayer this morning about the world in which we live and it shifts and changes. Whether we like it or not, Christendom is dead. Now please, I'm not saying Christianity is dead, but Christendom is dead. Christendom for many years has been that environment in which the church had a favored status. The church was given a place of privilege and advantage in our society. For a good part of this past century, churches and pastors were given a place of privilege in most communities, and they were held in respect. I remember in the 1950s, shows you how old I'm getting, um, Britain, which is where I was born and lived, went through a thing called the Suez Crisis. The Suez, Philip, you remember that? You're nodding? You're as old as me. The Suez Canal was blocked. Located. And Britain did not get oil. And so oil and petrol, gas for cars, was rationed. They called it petrol in Britain. It was rationed. It was rationed for everybody. It was even rationed for police. It was rationed for fire trucks. It was rationed for all the community service. Except one group of people for whom petrol was not rationed. Clergy. Their work in the community was felt to be so necessary and so vital. Now please understand, there weren't as many cars in those days. But those with cars, clergy with cars, 
got the gasoline they wanted to do their pastoral visiting. In the early 70s in Canada, Christendom, this position of privilege, status, died. Do you know that today the great majority of the churches in Canada are under 100 people? And many of them are stagnant? The only growth they experience if they grow at all is generational. In other words, children grow up in the community of the church. And even that is declining as young people may not necessarily embrace the faith that their parents once did. Sociologists tell us that the demise of Christendom, this, like this 21st century, like any other, is most like the 1st century. In the first hundred years of its life, the church had to survive and prevail in a culture that did not accept it and did not like it. The church had no privilege, no status, no rights. If you did, in fact, if anything, it had things going against it and almost nothing going for it. Yet it did survive in that hundred years. It prevailed and the gates of hell beat against it and the church did not fall. Now we know, particularly with the area of the world in which we live, that earthquakes are deadly. Their destruction takes just a few seconds. But we face today in our society something which I suggest to you is just as deadly, and that is not an earthquake, that is erosion. There's a silent and moral, silent spiritual and moral erosion that's been going on for many, many years, and it has eaten away at the moral fiber of Canada. Let me give you this morning, I may say four, actually there's five reasons for why we face that. We got those? Five reasons. Number one, we face a moral vacuum in our society. A recent article I read said that in the absence of personal values, television is defining the moral values and standards for many young people today. Think about that. What that means for your children or your grandchildren. That today's sitcoms and today's reality shows are defining the sexual and moral values of our teenagers. Can I suggest to you this morning that's scary. If that's where they're getting their values. Secondly, we face rising consumerism. This Sunday in Vancouver, more people will go through the doors of Ikea and Costco and Home Depot combined than through the doors of all of the churches in Vancouver put together. They'll visit Ikea and Costco and Home Depot more than the number of people that are in churches this morning in Vancouver. Thirdly, we face the challenges of religious pluralism. We are no longer the only spiritual or religious show in town. Number four, we have the quicksand of moral relativism. This thing slide away. And lastly, number five, for many reasons, there's the struggle of addictive lifestyles. Alcohol, drugs, gambling, pornography, consumerism. So in the face of these challenges, that's the world, folks, it will be vital in 2013, the years to come, that as a church and as Christians, we develop spiritual stamina and we strengthen our spiritual muscles. We can no longer assume that those who become Christians and are baptized will know simply what it means to follow Jesus and live like Christians. More than ever, more than ever, we will have to train Christians to live like Christians. When Paul wrote to a young pastor called Timothy, he used this, this exact idea. He says, train yourself, train yourself to be godly. 
That will involve at least four ideas this morning for you. Training people to understand and experience the new life that they have within them. That includes the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The truth that Christ now dwells in you, as I've shared with you on some Sunday mornings. That the seed of God, God has implanted and implanted His sperma within us. And you're a new person. You're a new child of God. We will need, first of all, to train people to understand and experience this new life within them. Secondly, it will involve training people how to read and study the Bible with the same skill that they would get if they went to seminary. I come across people all the time saying, I think the Bible is way too complicated and I can't understand it. Can I say that's not true? We can get into it and deal with it. Ladies, and I'm not being sexist when I say this, if you can read and <coughs> excuse me, if you can read and understand a knitting pattern, can you do that? Some of you yes, some of you said no. If you can read and understand a knitting pattern, you can get into the Bible. If you can work with your computer, you can get into the Bible. All kinds of stuff available today. Every Christian is called to be a theologian. Someone who can handle the Word of God. Who really knows how to slice and dice it. To cut it straight is what the Bible says in Timothy. One of the jobs of pastors and churches is to train people to know and study God's Word. Thirdly, it will involve training Christians, and can I say especially our young adults, how to recognize and resist the strategies of the devil, how to confront evil, how to resist the devil in our life and be strong. To recognize where he's coming from and to resist how he wants to work in their lives. We need to teach Christians to do that. We do not live in a morally neutral world or society. We live in a fallen world. And number four, if you're married or raising a family, it will involve training people in what it means to be married and to have a Christian house and family. Two Christians getting married does not automatically create a Christian marriage. We need to say, what does it mean to build a house that stands on God's word as Jesus talked about? And then when the storms of life come, it does not fall. It may shake, rattle, and roll a little, but it does not fall. In 2013 and beyond, we need to be a church today that is known for its spiritual stamina. <coughs> and as we see God doing that, we will say now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that should work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. That's one part of my prayer for us. Another prayer would be this. My prayer would be that everything we do at VCBC would be driven by love. I get that out of the next phrase and verses. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all the saints to grasp, notice his words, how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. What is it really that motivates people to do things? Well, a number of reasons. I think, for instance, some people are motivated by fear. They're afraid of what will happen to them if they don't do something. Sometimes a little fear might be healthy, but some people just do things just out of fear. I don't want to get caught. Secondly, some people are motivated by guilt. 
They know that they'll feel bad if they don't do that. Someone may think less of them, they don't want that, so they grudgingly say, I guess I'll better do it. Some people, by the way, are experts at using guilt on people to get them to do things. Guilt is not a biblical motive. Guilt is not a biblical motive. God doesn't use guilt. Thirdly, some people do things just out of duty. A lot of what we do is motivated by duty. We are expected to do some things. We've agreed to do them. Duty's not always wrong. But it doesn't last permanently. And these reasons in our lives may work to a certain extent. Some of them may work in some personalities more than other personalities. Some people respond to fear. Some people respond to guilt. Other people respond to duty. But as soon as that stimulus or reason is removed, it's very easy to slip back into being passive or apathetic. Kind of like a rubber band. It just kind of boing goes back to where it was before. Here's the fourth motivation. You know what it is. It's love. In Christianity, the highest and the deepest motive is always found in love. It's not just something we do or discover by itself. The power of love, says Paul, is to be discovered and experienced with all of the saints. In other words, we discover love and we practice love as we do it, put it to work in the church. Remember, this doxology comes in the letter to the Ephesians. A church that Paul says in chapter 1 is motivated and founded on love. But if you could fast forward the Bible, we get to do that. You move into the book of Revelation, and Revelation chapter 2 gives us insight into this church many years ahead. Paul says, uh, sorry, John says to them, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. You've tested those who be claimed to be apostles and are not. You found them to be false. You've persevered and endured hardships in my name, and you've, you have not grown weary. John writes about this church in the book of Revelation and says, this is the kind of church that you are. It sounds like a great church to be part of when you join. they they got stuff and programs for you to be involved in. They take you through a class to discover your spiritual gifts. And they don't leave you sitting in a row. They get you working. The atmosphere of this kind of church in Revelation chapter 2 just seems to ooze commitment. The lights are on seven days a week at this church. People are busy and the church is active. This church can smell heresy a mile away. You're not going to pull the wool over the rise in any way. You almost want to be the pastor of this kind of church. And then John records the words of Jesus as he walks in that church and up and down the rows and sees the heart of it. Because you see, Jesus has x-ray vision into our lives. And Jesus says about this church, yeah, you're great on doctrine, you're great on truth. You're great on work and great on effort. But Jesus says, I have this against you. He says, you have lost, you know what it is? You've lost your first love. Jesus says to them, I call you to repent. In other words, behind all of this busyness, behind all of the activity, behind all of the doctrine, behind all of the classes, behind all of the, the stuff going on, he says, there's an absence of love. That first love has kind of just slipped away and eroded somewhere. What is it? Well, can you draw in your mind just three circles that can intersect? The first one is to love God. The book of Moses, Deuteronomy, says, Hear, O Israel, this is, this is what we're called to do, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind and strength. Jesus says that's the first greatest commandment. 
And then flowing out of that circle, we're called to love one another. Jesus says, this is how the world will know we're true Christians. This is how Vancouver will know that VCBC in it has men and women who follow Jesus. This is how this neighborhood will know that this is a church of true disciples and followers of Jesus. He says you can put them to the test. You can see how they do in loving one another. Jesus, John says to us, be assured that we pass from death to life because he says we love one another. And then thirdly, we're called to love people in our world. You know, someone said, duty makes us do things well. But love makes us do things beautifully. The warning to us in the scriptures in this church in Ephesians is that we can get the church busy with all kinds of activities. Going seven days a week and classes for this and programs for that. But if it is not driven and motivated by love, Jesus will stand in the middle of VCBC and say to us, as he said to the church in Ephesus, repent. Rethink what it's all about. How do we get there? How does it come to us? We start at the person of Jesus. Remember Jesus said simply, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. As I have loved you, love one another. We need day by day, Sunday morning by Sunday morning, to stand in the sense of a shower of just the fact that God loves us. We sang that this morning. Here is love vast as an ocean. It's simply is to wash over us. Can we let it wash over us afresh this new year as a church? We may not agree on everything. You may not like this and you may not like that. But you know what? Who cares? Who cares? What is really important, really important, according to Jesus, is that we love one another. Here's the last part of the prayer of my heart. Our prayer for 2013 is that VCBC would be a church that is filled with the presence of God. Look at the last phrase. That you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. I sense today almost more than ever that people are spiritually hungry. But they're also spiritually lost. And that makes them vulnerable to all kinds of seductive voices in a way that they do not even know or understand. They're looking for God and they want to sense His presence. My prayer for us in 2013 is that we would have a sense of God's presence and power when we gather here for worship. I call that holy expectancy. And I've started to imagine this year what would it be like with such a holy expectancy that we can hardly wait at 9.30 or so for the worship service to begin. And the call to worship is like an opening note that starts our praise and the fullness of God comes and is present. A couple of Saturday nights ago in Victoria I took our 10-year-old grandson to a hockey game. Uh, the Victoria Royals were playing somebody or other. I don't really follow hockey. We got there about 6 o'clock. Game starts at 7. And then they do a warm-up kind of thing. The teams come out. They round and around warm-up. And then they go back in. 
And then at five past seven, people stand to sing the national anthem. And then the teams hit the ice. And there is in that hockey sense, I expect and say, yes, we're ready to begin. Man, move it up a notch. A notches. We have the church. I've taught for many, many years that the first priority of the church is not evangelism. And it's not teaching. Although those are important. The first priority of the church is worship. More than anything else, folks, we are called to be worshipers. Not just when we gather on Sunday morning. Don't misunderstand me. But the way in which we live is to live as worshipers. Men and women and young people who love God and follow God and whose hearts have a holy expectancy for the presence of God to come among us. What I'm asking is, can I imagine that? Can you imagine that? The French General Napoleon said, Imagination rules the world. Imagination is the power of an idea that lifts us beyond the ordinary, which refuses to believe what cannot be done, and instead commits itself to what must be done. So this morning as we begin this new year, can you begin to imagine with me, can you imagine the passion that would pulse through a church in which his pastors and people and leaders are utterly sold out to the cause of Christ and to his cross? Can you imagine the potential in the church in which people know the gifts that God has given them and they bring them and use them joyfully in service and where everyone knows that they're needed and they come together? Can you imagine the unity in a church in which rich and poor and people from the east and the west, young and old, those well-dressed and not so well-dressed, those with university degrees and those who have never made it through high school, where the Chinese and the non-Chinese and the Scots When they sit down at communion and when they pass bread and wine from hand to hand, they know, they know that they are the church, that they are one as the body of Christ, and they come together where the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Can you imagine that in this neighborhood? Can you imagine the spirit of loving warmth and devotion in a church in which people treat one another with the same grace and love that we believe God extends to us? And that we live in an environment of love and grace with one another. And by the way, that's not just when we're together as the church. But we are always BCBC. Even when we're apart, we're still the church. You understand that? We're the church on Monday mornings at 8 o'clock, and Tuesday mornings at 9 o'clock, and Wednesday mornings at 10 o'clock, as well as Sunday morning at 9.30 when we gather as the church. Can you imagine the excitement in a church that believes that lost people matter to God? And it will be normative to see people daily, weekly being saved, coming into the church, being baptized and following Jesus. You see, nothing, absolutely nothing like the local church can be better when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. It can comfort the grieving and heal the brokenhearted. It provides the love of God to those in need. It can open its arms to welcome people and lift up the tired and the weary. It speaks the word of Jesus that can free people from addictive and imprisoning lifestyles. In the word and in the power of the gospel, the church is the hope of the world. 
It alone is the message that can change the eternal address of people. When the church is faithfully, strategically fulfilling its biblical mandate of the message of the cross and the power of the Spirit, no other group of people in the world is able to make such a significant impact on humanity. And when I stand on my tiptoes, when I stand on my tiptoes amongst us, I can imagine these things being a reality here at VCBC. And then God says, He can answer beyond all that we will ask and even beyond all that we can imagine. That means that we lay aside any thought of merely doing business as the status quo next this year. 2013 is not a year for business as usual. Because whatever we ask in prayer, God can and wants to do more. Whatever we imagine, God can even do more than that. Our world and our city is rapidly changing. And the church must retool itself for these changing times. The seven last words of the church are, We've never done it this way before. So they don't do anything. There are programs and ideas that we may not have yet thought of that are in the imagination of God. We need to listen to His mind. We need to think outside our small box and get into the bigger box that God works in. And I believe that we're fast turning the core into a strategic and critical time in our culture. Maintaining the status quo will simply leave us behind. Let me share a personal thought as I close this morning. As we celebrated New Year a couple of days ago, I realized afresh, my children, grandchildren told me anyway, that I'm actually getting way past retirement age. And I'm in the age when people start slowing down and think about, you know, getting into retirement mode. Can I just tell you this morning, um, I turned 68 this year, that I'm not in that space, my head. When I started ministry 44 years ago, as a hockey player would say, I had young legs. Well, my legs are not as young as they once were. I know that. But can I tell you this morning that my heart and my mind is more committed than it ever was. And I have asked one thing of the Lord over my life. Actually, two things. The first one is this. That I would be the faithful husband and loved one person for all of my life. I enjoy being with my wife Harriet more than anything else in the world. And my prayer is we would be able to walk, this year we're married 44 years, 45 years. We'd be able to walk a lot of miles together. Best of friends and the best of lovers. That's been one wish. We're getting there. And secondly, that I would be the faithful pastor of a church. I ask the Lord that I simply would be faithful to his church. And it would be an extraordinary church for his glory. So as we step into this year, God says he will grant us more than we pray. And he will accomplish more than we can imagine. So would you begin to pray with me and the leaders through this year? Other pastors. Can you pray about the council and the commissions? 
Can you pray about the English congregation leadership team? Can you pray for the deacons? Can you pray with God to bring a new lead pastor among the church this strategic year? In our adult classes this morning, um, we're going to give an extended period of time for, for the classes just to do that. To pray for a, a lead pastor being called to the church this year. If you don't normally go to one of the classes, can I encourage you this morning, just go and visit one of them. doesn't matter which one. And simply join in with them because all of the groups this morning are having a prayer time for a lead pastor to be called this year. For someone of God's calling and choosing to come and sit and stand among us for that. Can you come to our class this morning and simply share in that? Can you pray with these people? Pray with the leaders. Pray for the deacons. Pray for the council. And you stand with me please. And then we will begin to understand and echo the words of Paul in this great doxology. Now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church. Could we be so bold as to him be glory in VCBC? and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and forever. Amen.